Welcome to Thinking Ahead. I'm your host, Carter Phipps, and we're exploring the movements, trends, people, and ideas that are shaping our evolving world. Make sure you subscribe today on your favorite podcast platform, and most of all, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Every day, Americans use oil and gas. We heat our homes, we drive our cars, we power our technology, and we energize, literally, our lives. And yet, we know we need to move toward more carbon-free sources of energy. Climate concerns are pushing us further and further in that direction, and it's happening faster and faster. But energy is essential for modern civilization, and changing our national energy infrastructure is a challenge not to mention our global energy infrastructure, even with the push for renewables. So the question looms, how do we and can we decarbonize our energy infrastructure? How fast can we do it? And what role will oil and gas play in that carbon light or carbon free future? I met energy expert Tisha Schuler a few years ago at a gathering on political polarization that the Institute for Cultural Evolution co-sponsored with the Breakthrough Institute and the Esalen Center for Theory and Research. It was on the Big Sur coast of California, beautiful place, and about 25 or 30 people. And as we spent time together over those few days, Tisha and I developed a friendship. She's a passionate environmentalist. For many years, she was the head of the Colorado Oil and Gas Association. And that made her, as you can imagine, a grizzled veteran of the fracking wars. Uh, Because while she was there, she worked very hard to adjudicate between the needs of the industry and the concerns of Colorado's increasingly powerful environmental groups. That wasn't an easy position to be in, and it made her a sort of target. That period of her life, uh, which was both fascinating and at times harrowing, uh, is chronicled in her book, Accidentally Adamant, the story of a girl who questioned convention, broke the mold, and charted the course off map. Since her time at the Colorado Oil and Gas Association, Tisha founded a consulting group, Adamantine Energy in Boulder, Colorado, where she works to help oil and gas companies all over the all over the country and really internationally as well, make the necessary transition to deal with our increasingly climate-focused social and political landscape. The conversation about energy is one of the most important we can have today, which is why we'll continue to bring energy experts onto the podcast. But I should also say that Tisha's wisdom is not just on her knowledge of the energy industry. When I got to know her, what I learned about her life is that the intense scrutiny and political and cultural landmines she faced as head of the Colorado Oil and Gas Association really led her to evolve as a person. Those trials and tribulations led her to become a more deep and integrated thinker, someone who really understands not just energy, but the culture around the subject, and someone who can speak about the climate debates, who's really sat on all sides of the table. She's definitely become someone I trust to give me the straight story about the future of this increasingly and really incredibly important arena that affects all of our lives. Let's welcome Tisha Schuler to Thinking Ahead. Hi, Tisha. Welcome to Thinking Ahead. It's so great to be here, Carter. Thanks for having me. Oh, great. I I hope this is the first of of many conversations about 
well, maybe about all kinds of things, but in particular about your expertise, which is energy. And you are my, you're one of my go-to experts about the world of energy, which I have been covering a little bit in this podcast. I want to cover more. Uh, and you are also my, you're my, you're my insider in the, in the oil and gas industry. You, you know that industry better than almost anyone I know. Uh, so I've got all kinds of things I want to ask you. That sounds great. This will be fun. All right. Great. So your last book, uh, it, you, you've had two books now, congratulations. And you just, you're, you recently had one, the Game Changers Playbook, How Oil and Gas Leaders Thrive in an Era of Continuous Disruption. And in that book, you start off by kind of saying you've worked in the oil and gas industry your whole life. You're also, you're a passionate environmentalist. I know that. And you talk about how you love the oil and gas industry, which is a position that is not common today to be in that the center of that constellation of thoughts. So tell me about why you love the oil and gas industry. I'm so I'm so glad you asked that because I often don't get to talk about why I love the oil and gas industry. And it wasn't always that way for me either. Um, I mm. took a job as the president and CEO of the Colorado Oil and Gas Association when I was a young hippie mama uh, living in Boulder, Colorado. And, and truth be told, I took it to help them, you know, as, as often we well-meaning people right. want to do, you know, I was going to help them. I was going to help them tell their story, help them be more environmental, help them. That's where I started. And I actually didn't even know a lot of Republicans, never mind oil and gas executives then. Uh-huh. Right. Um, and they hired me for my business acumen. And I think maybe for the hope that like a a, a woman from Boulder would, 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 would help would, their image, would put a good face on the industry. <laughs> and they could tell I was, you know, enthusiastic because I have a science background. So I am enthusiastic about energy and enthusiastic about oil and gas. But what happened when I worked um, for Koga is my job became uh, representing. And just for the leader, yeah. just for, I'm sorry, just for people who are listening to know that you are like the public face of the Colorado oil and yes. gas movement. Yes. Like that, and that's so a significant job yeah. in the state, right? I mean, yeah, and so, even in the country, right? Yeah. Even, so Colorado, you know, at the time was like the sixth Produce, you know, largest producer of oil and gas by state in the in the country, something like that. And then um, uh, it was about fifteen percent of the state tax receipts. So it kind of gives you a picture. One hundred and fifty year history of oil and gas development in Colorado. And yeah, yeah, I was the face, so I represented. So in in maybe a more cynical terms, I was like the head lobbyist for the oil and gas industry. Right. But the sure. way I embodied that position was there were forty thousand employees and their family that are depending on me to put my best foot forward for the industry, but also to bring out the best in, in the industry. Right. So one of the things I did every year, I took my family and my boys were quite young then. And we drove to every oil and gas basin in the state and spent a few days. And so I got to know, you know, of course, executives, landowners, mineral owners, um, employees, service company employees. And I just became, maybe it was because I had this responsibility, but I, I just became absolutely enthralled with um, the history of oil and gas. That's interesting. With, with that sort of Western can-do spirit that is right. so embodied. And right. then the piece that people don't know is that oil and gas is the rocket science of the subsurface. So there's also this like innovation and technology yeah. and like amazing developments. 
And mm. so um, there's just so much to love. We could spend an hour on what there is to love about the oil and gas industry, but really it's the people and the history and the evolution. And then the individuals that I got to know working along the way. And, and when I left, I, you know, jumping ahead a little bit to form Adam and Teen Energy, I really thought, what can I do for this industry unburdened by having to represent them? So when I had to represent them, of course, everything I said in public was in the paper. I was in the paper or on the news every single day for five and a half years. Most of it, not nice. So I could (laughs) never actually really say, hey, guys, there's a few things we need to do differently. Or there's, you know, there's a few things where we're playing into our stereotype. I think we could do a little better. So now I'm unburdened. So I can both love the industry, but I can also speak, uh, say the things that I think they need to hear as an ally and fan, um, but, but also, you know, a friendly, a friendly critic. Right, right. And before we go on to like now, like just what are you most proud of? I'm just curious, like what are you most proud of of that time? Look, and people can look it up that it was a very controversial era and all, all kinds of stuff happened. You got what well, you took it from all sides. And I, I have so much respect for what you went through. Uh, no one should have to go through what you went through in terms of being being in, in that kind of culture, being a kind of a focus of that kind of culture war. But I just like what are you most proud of of that era of your life? Yeah, on on the public facing side, what I'm most proud of is that while I was the CEO, the industry supported five national precedent setting rule changes. So people who are in the know in oil and gas will say Colorado's the toughest state to do business. Well, we signed up for that. We said this is the most special state in the country and we deserve to be regulated in a forward thinking Mm -hmm. tough way. And mm-hmm. we, we participated and agreed with national precedent setting rules. And that took bazillions of hours of, of working, cajoling, you know, engaging, converting um, on all sides, engaging with, I, I met with environmental right. leaders in Colorado every month for my whole five and a half years. So th- I'm really proud of doing that. Now, yeah. it turns out that those legacies are very short-lived. <laughs> Life, right. but, you know, things move on really fast. On a per- on a <laughs> Such per- is the nature of government. Yeah. Yeah. Way, right? yeah. On, a, on a personal level, what I'm most proud of is that now I know I am a person who just evolves and changes constantly. Mm-hmm. And I, because I, I went from you know, kind of a naive and maybe a little bit entitled lefty saying like, oh, I'm going to help these guys into just an embattled, maybe even embittered, you know, warrior (laughs) in the culture wars around fracking. And then came out and said, okay, now I've got all this perspective. I've got all this information. Who am I? And I spent a good year after I left Koga trying to figure out who I am, what do I want to do? And what I now know is that I can change, I can grow, I can adapt, I can take new information. And that actually makes the future seem bright because we're going to start talking, I bet, about some pretty intractable, seemingly impossible problems. Yes. But, now, but, but now I kind of know like, okay, there's something I, that I don't know yet that I'm going to learn and we're going to we're going to figure this out. And that, that I'm really, I, I, I'm really proud of that. Cause that is making lemonade out of what was kind of a miserable, challenging, difficult five and a half years. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I get that. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I, if, if I, you know, I, I'm not very familiar with the oil and gas industry these days, and I'm certainly familiar in my networks with people who are super concerned, as you can imagine with climate, with, 
environmentalism. And I certainly share a lot of those concerns, but it's interesting, you know, in my life, I grew up in, you know, in a little town in Northern Oklahoma, Punk City, Oklahoma, where that was just, that was oil and gas built that town basically. <laughs> and like it built much of Oklahoma and, uh, uh, you know, Conoco Oil and, and, and E.W. Marlin and all these wildcatters from the 20s and 30s kind of created a lot of those towns and, and had a huge influence on, on them in, in a way in an era when, when that kind of innovation and the, 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 the emergence of oil and gas as an industry sort of co- coincided with this massive transformation of American culture into this economic powerhouse and was absolutely essential to that powerhouse. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, until the sixties and seventies, probably we didn't even think have, a, you know, think that was a problem at all. We didn't even recognize that there were problems that were coming down the line. And of course the first huge problem was just the environmental consequences of all that in all kinds of ways. And, and then the next problem that came along was climate. And sometimes when, you know, I'm one of, I'm an evolutionary. So sometimes when we think about, the evolution of systems of culture and systems of our economy, we have a tendency to demonize the one that we're trying to move away from Mm. and idealize the one that we think we're trying to move into instead of just, instead of maybe seeing them more as just natural stages that we're moving through. And yeah, maybe we do need to move through one and move beyond this, but, but we, it just seems we, it's hard to get out of being the kind of, you know, I, I call the scapegoats and saviors model, you know, where you, would, you know, something's a savior, something's a scapegoat, but oil and gas actually did play an enormously positive role and has for a hundred years. Now, then we can talk about how we go forward. You know? mm-hmm. it, so it's funny. Um, I love the way you characterize that. One of the early insights I got to understand when I, got, when I first got to Koga and I was still in this mode of, oh, let me teach them. And I had a board of 40 board members, 39 men, all boomers, you know, in their 50s and (laughs) 60s. And we sat around the table every month for two hours and they made decisions by consensus. So you you could just imagine the starting point for that conversation. But, But what I came to understand, because I needed to understand them to figure out how to get anything done, Um, was that most of them grew up through that cycle that you just described. And in fact, when they were growing up, energy was just something you were so thankful for. Your parents were still telling stories of when power got to the city, you know, or, uh, or the, you know, when, when grandpa, like, you know, they saw grandpa on a horse or whatever, they lived through the, the gratitude and this idea that all of a sudden they were the bad guys was purely baffling and, right. and and up close i i had a and then of course they they didn't articulate that that wasn't it was it was more the like i don't get it like why don't they say thank you they can I, well, I do not get it i think people don't understand like yeah i they they don't get it exactly no, they don't get it and they don't and so then this narrative develops and you can put it into the the evolution scheme because i don't know what it is but for them the uh, the the narrative developed as of environmentalists are just making money by critiquing us. So they, they're sort of this interesting thing it, where instead of the reverse demonization, yes, instead of being curious about like, wait, why are we the bad guys now? I'm not sure. I understand we're providing the product you demand and have no tolerance for price changes on. So right. wait, why are we the bad guys here? And so that has, that was really important and interesting 
Um, and still, that generation still overwhelmingly leads and manages the oil and gas industry. And so that disconnect of like, why are we the bad guys, which has transitioned into kind of a hardening defensive right. posture um, right. that, that now ref really reflects political polarization. Um, yeah. But but the way that I can break through that now is to really say, I get it. Like, thank you. Thank you for setting up the world <laughs> as, yeah. as we know it. And yeah. thank you also for the potential that now we have to bring people, billions of people out of poverty around the world. So thank yeah. you. And now, now let's spend our time getting to know this other force, this, this force that's right. focused on climate, that's focused on a decarbonizing energy future. And of course, Carter, as I'm sure you can translate into um, evolutionary dynamics, when we, you know, once we get out of defense and into a curious mindset, yeah, now there's room. There's a whole different way to think and have a conversation and engage. Yeah. Uh, so that was really that was really important. But if if I could just digress for one second, because yeah, the sure. history of oil and gas is so cool. So for your listeners who do think oil and gas is evil and you want to get off it, that, <laughs> yeah, that, that's fine. But the history is spectacular of how we transformed the world so, so, so fast and, yeah. and how cheap everything we do today is compared to what it would have cost us right. um, historically. And that that potential still exists for literally billions around the world. Um, oh, it's just magical. I mean, it really is magical. It's like the invisible magical juices available to all of us for almost for free, you know, basically. <laughs> right. It's amazing. Right. right. Okay. I, right. I, end of digression. I love that v invisible magical juices that power <laughs> our lives available that that are almost unseen and invisible that we hardly know this to yeah. the point where we we a we forget how hard it was to create that world and we even forget we and we're we're and we're like three steps removed from even understanding where it comes from you know Absolutely. like you know it, it's, yeah. it's it's an amazing thing in, in a way that no one in the developing world would ever take for granted now let's hope in two or three generations, they take it for granted. Absolutely. You know, that's, but, 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 you know, no one, you know, is, uh, you know, I've certainly, uh, I had interviewed uh, Robert Bryce, you know, mm -hmm. a, a couple, few months ago, and he was talking about going to India and interviewing people and they don't take energy for granted. And I've traveled in India before, you don't, you could have a blackout at any moment. <laughs> you don't oh, take yeah. energy exactly. for granted there, you know, it's like, yeah. I'm sure it's getting better. It was, I was in the more traveling in the nineties, but anyway. No, but, no, I yeah. was in Nigeria in 2019. And if you're wealthy, if you're a, a wealthy citizen or restaurant or hotel, you have a diesel generator right. as your backup. Like that's the irony is like the thing, you know, the things we're like trying to get away from are, are actually even just like the backup to keep the lights on um, resources. And so, it, yeah, it's so it's so interesting how we're able to to take it for granted, which then maybe makes us. Uh, perhaps unrealistic about the energy transition um, yeah. by oversimplifying because it is invisible and it does seem magical. And so it's like, well, let's just replace it with something else. Yeah. Magical. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Right. Oh, I, I, so when I think of the in industry, I think of like they have their, it's unique in this, in the sense that they're sort of faced with two challenging issues that whereas many business industries are faced with one, you know, obviously every, every industry is different, but many are faced with the challenging industry of a, of a business that's being disrupted by new players and new technology. Lots of business can relate to that. And the oil and gas industry and the energy industry is 
is that on steroids? There's tons of new players and they're disrupting the industry in all kinds of ways from a technological driven standpoint. But they also have this massive social pressure that's happening simultaneously. And many industries don't have to deal with both of those. So tell me about like where, where, what's your, what's your sense of what's happening now as also as this new generation begins to come to power in the oil and gas mm-hmm. industry and in the, in the, in the, in the, in the industry is there's all kinds of things happening in the industry right now. And it's even changed in the last five years, last 10 years. So what's your paint me a portrait of, of the energy industry as you, as you sort of see it today. Yeah. One thing that happened, I think like, and I think we see this evolution happening with tech right now too, is when industries get really big, even as diverse as the energy industry is and the oil and gas industry is so diverse, literally, literally millions of companies, you know, thousands in Colorado. Um, But, but everyone gets a little uh, flat footed, I think, or can get flat footed. And so you mentioned technological disruption and you also mentioned the new generation. I actually think the rise of the millennials is uh, probably the most disruptive force affecting the oil and gas industry internally and externally. So within oil and gas companies, millennials now make up 40% of the workforce, but you know, something like 10% of the leadership, you know, across the board. So here you have this generation that dominates in raw numbers from now through 2050. The boomers are just have already passed their peak, uh, you know, where they dominated population. And so there's just this. And and let's just take a moment for, you know, Gen X exists. You and I are Gen X. (laughs) I just want, you know, I just want to like, it's so funny. Or the forgotten sandwich generation. You know, we're these kind of, I feel like sometimes we're these sort of like pragmatists. They're like shouting amidst the idea idealistic battles of the day, you know? <laughs> oh, you know so, yeah, Gen X, uh, for those of you listening, we love you. Sorry, you're not relevant. Okay. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Yes. I, I do actually, when I do talk to Gen Xers, you know, all 10 of us in the world, I do <laughs> say that our job is to effectively build the bridge from the boomers to the millennials. So the, we did all think we were going to have our day, but that day just isn't, isn't going to, it's not going to happen. Yes, exactly. It's good. <laughs> if, you look at the, if you look at the population numbers, there is just not going to happen. So um, millennials, so internal to companies, you have a millennial workforce that's, you know, getting impatient that the oldest millennials turned 40 in 2021. And so um, that you know, this is really a, a um, generation coming to their political, civic, economic prime. And externally, they're dominating in changing these social expectations. So whereas, you know, five years ago, maybe an oil and gas regulator or investor um, or, you know, maybe landowner would be a boomer. Now, increasingly, it's a millennial. And millennials, of course, care about climate. They lean left. They have totally uh, different expectations of what companies' ethical responsibilities are. So of all all the disruptions, that's actually really the most relevant one. And it, it it drives the two other disruptors, which is how environmental activism now is absolutely existentially relevant as a risk Mm -hmm. to oil and Mm -hmm. gas companies and and Mm -hmm. oil and gas companies until recently really thought of, of environmental movement as, as kind of a fringe um, risk. But now, now it's central. I mean, companies have to reorganize their boards, their strategies, 
their mm-hmm. operating plans now in response. And then the second area is racial equity and justice. And mm-hmm. this really happened in 2020. But because the millennial movement is going to ensure that this is an enduring transformation in an industry that has historically not looked particularly diverse, but mm-hmm. engages in communities across the country in really relevant ways, both positive and negative, uh, engaging in creating enduring community prosperity, building pipelines for diverse leadership workforce. These are all things now that companies have to make central to their right. strategy. So it's not just climate. Um, it's also the, these really other important transformations. That, but, but luckily, companies are really well positioned to do that because they are distributed across communities in such big, relevant ways. Right. And and throughout a lot of different communities in a way where some com- some businesses may be more concentrated in urban areas or that's the right words. Oil and gas is all over the country and also in a lot of rural areas. You know, Absolutely. Strong and, presence, you know? Yeah. And oil and gas includes like there's a huge network of gas utilities that gets gas to industrial manufacturing facilities, to homes. Um, yeah. And and is a part of fueling infrastructure, and so in in as you said in in different kinds of communities, whether they're historically disadvantaged economically or racially diverse, um, gas utilities are there. So there's there really is you know never mind just the exploration and production areas. Every part of the country is touched by oil and gas in a way that that companies can make meaningful investments and meaning be a part of really important transformation. So it, it sounds like you're you're saying that the millennial generation is not just having an effect on the the industry from the outside, but really from the inside. I mean that's happening with people. There's an activism in the employees on the inside of these companies as well. Yes. Now it's a quiet activism. You okay. you will never see the activism happening of the millennial generation within companies because oil and gas companies are overwhelmingly traditionally hierarchical and people work their way up the chain and they're dominated by scientists and engineers. But since I started undertaking this work and one of the, the game changers that I recommend to companies is to put their millennial workforce in the center of all their most important strategic meetings. So Mm. shadow boards, long-term strategy, public climate engagement. And the companies that are doing that are reporting back that at first, the internal millennial workforce really upsets the apple cart, as you might expect. And then the ideas and and execution of those ideas is transformational. And so we have clients, for example, that are taking on um, new, new projects that are clean energy projects, like big investments and the line of their millennial workforce that wants to work on those projects is convincing management, oh, oh, okay, we, like we really can do this. Our workforce mm-hmm. is so motivated. And the same on the diversity, equity, and inclusion work, which all companies are undertaking. So mm-hmm. oil and gas companies are no exception. Mm-hmm. But, but millennials expect this. They demand this. This is not This is not going to be like a cute committee that we, that we hear from <laughs> once a year. This that is, meets over there. Yeah, this is deep, transformational, cultural work. And we expect to see changes, changes in leadership, changes in community engagement strategy. And oh my gosh, Carter, it's probably one of the most fulfilling parts of my work to go out and say, hey, we should pay attention to our millennials. 
and everyone went, oh, isn't it our <laughs> job to teach them how the world really works? You know, that's where we all start. That's interesting, and, yeah. and then and then to really see where companies are embracing their millennial workforce, even the old farts are just getting lit up by it. You know, just wow. the energy, the enthusiasm, the transformation. And let's let them carry the load. Let's let them be burdened with solving these problems and leadership. We can share yeah. the load. It's 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 really exciting. Wow, that's cool. That's very interesting. That would be very satisfying. They must the, the those those the, there must be a lot of individuals inside those companies that appreciate when you walk in that door. It's pretty and, exciting. Yeah, and they're diverse too. That's the yeah. other cool thing is of course that generation you know, is, right? That, that generation is so diverse and whether they're first or more, second more or so. third, third generation immigrants, which we have a lot of in the oil and gas industry, a lot of people with engineering backgrounds or uh, they're just people of color, people of different sexual orientation, different abilities. Um, that generation is just more diverse. So, of course, everything gets better when you have more inclusivity at the planning tables. And so that's that's really exciting, too, because it, it, it helps foreshadow the opportunities in the future. And once we start putting our millennials out front so the public can see our workforce, um, that's going to help break down some of these historic stereotypes, which are true. You know, these like mm -hmm. older white guys, you know, run in these old oil and gas companies like we we <laughs> we play that role well. Um, but when you get back, you know, back into these strategy meetings, it's a whole it's a whole different world. That's interesting. It's bound. It's going to change. You can. Yeah, yeah it's going it, it, to. It's like it was true. It was true. It's, it, it, you know, those things in life, they're true. They're true. They're true. They're true. And then suddenly it's very different. Yes. yes. Yeah, exactly. And Gen X, we just got to hold on for dear life. Right. That's what I just, mean, just, we're just, yeah. Uh, yeah, we're negotiating the. the yeah. The, yeah. I don't think there's like a Gen X moment. That's <laughs> That's why um, I'm riding the millennial coattails. <laughs> you better say good things about them. Yeah, you? exactly. <laughs> um, uh, so, so climate. So let's get. So let's talk some about climate. Um, obviously, this is an issue, and I, it looks like to me in culture. I mean, this has just gone from being you know kind of a, a major culture war to kind of, in, in some ways, not being essential. Mm -hmm. Like, like it, it's sort of. Like, uh, I mean, the business community has has thrown has has become uh, maybe not the oil and gas community is not. You can speak to that. But but the business community, by and large, has taken up this cause. Now, we can say how much of that is PR releases and how much of that runs deep. But um, but it's it's really changed over the last decade. Now, even over the last I, it seems like to me over the last six, seven years, this has become more and more of an issue. That the business community across all sectors, it seems, or most sectors, has you know wants to be out front about and wants to address, and then you see the rise of the, you know, the, the look at the markets today, the rise of Tesla, the rise of the battery industry, the rise of the electric car industry, just on on, on so many levels. There's so many energy disruption companies. There's such a technical on, on multiple levels. There is this concern with climate about moving forward, about change our infrastructure. That is that is part of every uh, you know. I re, I follow a lot of the business media, and it's mm -hmm. it, it's ubiquitous. Mm -hmm. So, how is that your perception, and how is that change that's happening being perceived inside the oil and gas industry? And how are they sort of getting on board? How are they thinking about that change? Yeah, it's absolutely correct that climate is ubiquitous. 
the biggest challenge of oil and gas companies getting on board in a really meaningful way is not going to be the one you expect. And, mm. and that is that once a company decides, okay, we get it. Our investors want it. Our public wants it. Our regulators want it. We want to work on climate. There is often not a seat at the table for them or people to talk to or everything they try to do is accused of greenwashing. Mm -hmm. And there, there's a lot there, right? We could spend an hour on what that is or why that is. But the the, right. the, the summary for, for, for this audience and the, the nut I'm always trying to crack is how do we make sure that when a company says, okay, okay, I'm in, that yeah. we make room for them. That we that that yeah. we're that there's a space for the, and there's not just this critique of of every step because of course the first step is for an oil and gas company is not going to be we're shutting down our business we're shutting down we're shutting down everything <laughs> right, right. It's, it's it it doesn't make any sense um so that's that's actually really important that we all collectively figure out how to make space because one of the things I see happening is the more this becomes ubiquitous. The, the less room there is for oil and gas at the tables. Right. And, and, and I will take responsibility for my part and, you know, my industry's part of, of not showing up for a really long time. And if I'm talking to an oil and gas, you know, yeah. a company, I say, Hey, we can't get mad. We were like, we don't need to be at your table. And now we want to see and, and the doors closed, you know? So, so I'm not saying that there isn't a shared responsibility. Of course. Yeah, there is. I get that. Yeah. But if we prioritize climate and want to address and want to have all tools in the toolbox, all bright engineering minds, all millennial brainiacs working on this, then right. we should make room at the table. In a really big, meaningful way. So, so that's one thought. And then the other thought is um, I'm always trying to figure out how to break down this political identity and climate being completely commingled. So if you're a Republican, which many people who work in the industry are, although mm -hmm. not, as, not as many millennials, obviously, but if, if you are, then if you say, I want to work on climate, you have somehow caved or lost or given in right. uh, or succumbed to the reality of the left, which you don't want to buy. And right. so I, I really want us all to somehow figure out how to disentangle political identity from climate because mm -hmm. it's, it's the top obstacle to, yeah. to getting involved. And so the way I do it in my work is I present um, all disruption, anything about climate in the context of risk. And I treat it like you would treat weather with numbers and charts and data and possibilities and percentages. And um, but there's this hurdle that any conservative person has to overcome where they say, aren't we just letting them win? And, and it might be them. Is it, this it, our identity? Right. Yeah, it, it won't be. It won't be. It will never be articulated in that way. But I spent a lot of my time unwinding climate from political identity because we can't actually expect companies to radically transform to the energy future and every individual to to turn into liberals at the same time. Like, is that going to happen? Right. And, and so that that's going to be a really important piece of this. Right. Right. Yeah. I felt for a long time, it's like the 
we we need to make room for the like you know i've generally identified more with the left although not in everything and not in all kinds of ways but i always felt like we need to make room for the right to have a to have a climate strategy to have their own climate strategy to have yeah. their that may be very different and made to develop in all kinds of ways and yeah. their own energy strategy that may yeah. be really important and i i hope i think we'll see something really positive when we see that develop and then we're having discussions about how we go forward and what's the best way and what's the most, you know, rather than in this kind of stuck, a bit, a kind of stuck polarization. Yeah. A a really stark example of that, that I think any listener could, could relate to is the, over the last year, a whole bunch of oil and gas companies um, have come out in favor of a carbon tax. This is a miracle. We should be throwing an epic virtual party for this transformation and conversation. Instead, a carbon tax has become unpopular and yeah. it has become, uh, you know, it, it's just, the left, it's just not fashionable anymore. Right. So we're, we're not even going to talk about it. It's it was the thing everyone wanted 15 years ago. And yeah, I mean, Exxon came out in like 2008 or something, right? Yeah, they so, the carbon tax and no one noticed. <laughs> right. And so the, the funny thing is for me, I think now, why wouldn't you like, at least let that be an opening bid? Like, like yeah. that, if that gets everyone at the table, why would you just say, "Oh, never mind, we're we're not interested in that anymore"? Um, yeah. And so that that's just a good example of like, okay, you're interested in a carbon tax, let's talk because there's probably something else we can find to work yeah. together. Yeah, it, it, you know, I this one of the issues I always feel around because I'm often talking to friends in my networks, not all, certainly I have. A, friends in all kinds of political networks and different points of view. But, but I certainly have a lot of friends who care deeply about climate and are passionate about it. And, uh, and I'm often having discussions with him about the energy industry and my own thoughts. And, and, and Bill Gates said something that I thought really captured it, something very important. He said, it was in, I think an interview in Bloomberg, I was just watching TV and I happened to see him say this. And he said, you know, we have, we have two problems in trying to deal with climate. One is we have, there's a climate, there's a denial of climate that that's, that it's an issue. There's a sort of a, a denial and a resistance to the science and not wanting to kind of deal with the, the science of, of climate change. And, and, but he said, but there's another problem is too, is there's the people who think it's easy to change mm-hmm. that, that, and, and I'm often find myself in responding to people and say, look, I, I get it. I want to decarbonize. I want to change too, but I think this is a more entangled, complex issue than you would have uh, than, than many people believe. And and when you don't believe it's a complex, difficult engineering ch- challenge, you know, mm-hmm. business engineering slash you know challenge. And and I want to talk about that. Then then an interesting thing happens. Then you think, well, then the only reason it must not have happened is because people are just resisting it. Now I know there's been res- legitimate resistance to it. Yes, there has been. But that's not the only reason. But right. and if you think that's the only reason, then it's like then then we're back to I always say evil people doing evil mm-hmm. things and for evil reasons, you know, <laughs> because mm-hmm. they want to make money or something with it, you know. And you and and you're back to demonizing them, and you think that's the only issue. But often comes that's sort of, but we that's where we get if we think this is just why why aren't we just putting all solar and wind? I mean, it's a right. prob, you know problem solved, you know. Right. Okay, but no, then you have to to have a really serious conversation about this. And I, I like to think I want to have 
serious pragmatic i'm gen x right one of serious <laughs> pragmatic conversations about this and and actually try to make progress then you have to you have to get deep enough to see that there are a lot of different issues that we we all have to deal with and i know there are activists out there and people in the academic world who say we won't name their names who who who, who want to who support the idea that it's all easy actually mm-hmm, <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. but but everyone i trust and i don't know this issue as well as you do but I've looked into it enough. The people I who I really trust know tell me that it's not so simple. Mm-hmm. It's much more complex. It's not that we can't make progress. There is so much we can do, and I, I think we can. And I'm optimistic. I feel like we this may we may move a lot of this forward in all kinds of ways that are unpredictable. But but transitioning our entire energy in- infrastructure on you know, on a million different levels is a complex endeavor. So can you speak to that? That Bill Gates kind of concern. Yeah, I'm reading Bill Gates' um, book right now, and I actually recommend it for everyone. And and if you want to feel really smart, do what I do and did and accidentally buy it in large print because then you turn the pages really fast <laughs> and you feel, you feel like, oh, I'm so I'm so good at this. So I know this subject inside and out. But what yeah. he's done in a compelling way is laid out the complexity. And I think if if you, if you're a serious person who cares about climate. And if climate keeps you up at night ever, and it does keep me up at night, mm-hmm. then you have to take the time required to understand its complexity. You don't have to study it in depth. You just have to get over this idea of anyone who says renewables or wind and solar, and that's their answer, knows nothing about how we need to address Climate. So this oversimplification may become our greatest threat as opposed to to fossil fuels, for example, Mm -hmm. because if we're not serious about understanding what the problem is, we're not going to get serious about um, changing it. And we could wreak havoc Mm -hmm. on our economy, on our way of life, on literally on global stability. Uh, We could talk about that later if Mm -hmm. we don't understand the complexities of these issues. And the more likely outcome, rather than my super melodramatic one, is that we're just not going to ever actually accomplish anything. Yeah, because yeah or, or like even just move things forward, you know, to yeah, really move the, things forward, right? Yeah. So the here, just a short version of the reality yeah. um, of the of of energy complexity is that decarbonizing the power sector is kind of like the easy bit, and then decarbonizing transportation, industrialization, manufacturing, creation of cement. These are problems we do not have solutions for yet. And, mm-hmm. and where we do have solutions, they are not affordable. And we live in a world where a billion people are going to come out of poverty. And the first thing that they're going to need, particularly in a changing climate, is manufacturing and cell phones and cement and air conditioning and cars or, you know, or motorbikes. And so we're living in a world where all these really hard to decarbonize things, we're going to actually have a ton more of. So if we want to get serious, then we right. need to we need to look at that with eyes wide open. And one of the reasons that oil and gas industry can come across as dismissive is that they understand the, the math of the demand and projected demand. And they go, but you need us. Like we don't actually have an alternative. And as soon as someone creates one, fine, we'll get it at scale or we'll invent it and get it to scale. Mm-hmm. But the, the the sense of being dismissive is actually like we've done the math and we get it. And that doesn't come across in a compelling way. <laughs> I want to acknowledge right. um, but that does inform some of the, the conflict we have. Um, 
but here's the here's the my, here's like my vision, my I, idealism at play is just in the United States of, uh, alone. Yeah. We have a million oil and gas workers. We have millions of oil and gas wells. We have pipeline infrastructure around the country. We have gas going into almost all homes, businesses, uh, natural gas going into homes, businesses, um, industrial manufacturing sites. We have this extraordinary infrastructure and talent and R&D money, um, the brightest minds in the world. Why wouldn't we put them to work? transforming the energy system. So to my mind, having the oil and gas industry as your top partner in creating a decarbonizing energy future is just plain common sense. Like there's money, there's people, there's infrastructure, and we can convert all of that in a way that will be cost effective and faster, better, cheaper, safer than if we try to create all this stuff from scratch. Mm -hmm. So I, and I make that case internal to the industry to big cheers. Actually, people get so excited about like, Oh, we don't have to be the enemy. We can be the good guy, right? Yeah. Let's (laughs) let's do it. Um, And then, and externally, of course I make the case because so often we show up and there's just not a seat at the table. And instead the seat should be like, come on, but like, like we're going to get to work. So there's no time for, you know, for dinking around. And, and I, and let me just acknowledge there are elements and lobbying organizations for the industry that are slowing things down that I I really couldn't care less. They're not on my radar. They're not the force that I'm talking about. I would say a good 75% of the industry is, is ready to, to get engaged and, and involved in a really meaningful way. Um, And that, that's who we're talking about. Mm. And what, it, it, it does seem to me, so I want to ask, like, what are those meaningful ways? But, you know, the, you, you mentioned all the various industries. It does seem to me that, like, it seems the first industry, I mean, the electrification of the transportation industry almost seems mm-hmm. like it's, that seems like what, that, it's almost a low-hanging fruit. Now, that doesn't get you the decarbonization. It just means you're getting, it means you've, you you have the opportunity to then decarbonize your electricity sector, right? That right, doesn't, right. I mean, you can yeah, have a Tesla double, and you're not, you're not. You double it. Right. While you yeah. double or triple it. Yeah, exactly. Because mm-hmm. so much energy is required. So it allow it concentrates your, your carbon in one in, in, in electricity. But but then you have to figure out how to decarbonize that sector. So it may it may be good down the line, but it's not good yet. Uh, mm-hmm. So what are what, what are the where what's the what are the steps? What What's the what's the things that excite you in, in let's say, the next decade about what can yeah. be done and the transformations that can come down the line? Yeah, two things. I'll, uh, I'll just focus on two because there's two sort of macro things you can start to imagine. One is um, a transformation to hydrogen, which has a million subtleties and a million um, different potential uses. But let's just imagine that our natural gas infrastructure, which both provides a ton of power, which is going to be required to have a stable, reliable you know, electric system that's going to grow threefold uh, to meet all these needs. But you can imagine a transformation over time to increase, you can blend hydrogen into natural gas. 
And then later you can convert a lot of natural gas resources to hydrogen infrastructure. So mm-hmm. hy- hydrogen can be produced a lot of different ways, some which produce carbon and some which don't. Um, but essentially, this is, a, this is a different kind of imagination of transforming existing infrastructure into an ultimately zero carbon infrastructure over time with baby steps as uh, we can afford it, as we have the technology, and as we can actually just physically make those changes. Um, and then the other one, which actually pairs well with hydrogen, is carbon capture and sequestration. And it's yeah. Where of, are we at with that? Yeah, what's, yeah. What's, people like to be people who who you know have a, a maybe I would say an oversimplistic view of the energy system. Like to say, oh, that just allows our bad habits. Um, you know, we can just keep burning more carbon if we can capture it and store it. But here's the reality: we don't have solutions. So for some significant amount of time, we need to capture carbon and we need to store it underground. And there is so much awesome, amazing work going on on how we're going to store wow. that um, underground in the U.S. and and there's um, there's projects all over the world demonstrating that this can be done. And just my little company has clients who are working on projects right now. So this is something we're going to see. And I just encourage everyone to really think of sequestration as a viable option. If we're taking carbon and permanently storing it underground and it get, it buys us time, it buys mm-hmm. us time to work towards zero carbon. And if it's cost effective, it's actually a viable solution. Carbon isn't evil. Carbon is something we don't want in the atmosphere. So if it's underground, yay. <laughs> so um, <laughs> That's an area I'm I'm really getting um, excited about because from the the oil and gas industry's perspective, this is like in our wheelhouse. This is right. this is where we know how to do work. Right. And companies are already starting to talk about net negative oil fields. So a field that stores more carbon than the oil produce will ultimately release. So you can start imagining a world where if we still need oil, because there's places we don't. Well, it it seems like even if we electrify the transportation sector, the, 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 we're not going to, it's going to be a long time before we electrify the, the, the plane planes. You know what I mean? It's like, if we want to air travel, it's not going to be electrified anytime soon. So it seems like I, I could imagine a future in which a lot becomes electrified, but that dimension of transportation stays yeah. with and cargo and cargo boats are the huge right. one there you go we right think about we yeah. move cargo around the world now we think about it a little more since the suez canal got blocked but right. you know, <laughs> right. a lot of that's diesel powered or yeah. natural gas powered yeah there so, you go yeah interesting that that's fascinating so so what so how do you see that's good so hydrogen and uh, and carbon capture and and also you you'd love to be able to unleash you know the greatest minds, the the the, the, the greatest minds in that sector, the engine, the, the the tremendous engineering talent to to mm-hmm. do those. But you kind of have to get beyond the idea that that you, you have to get beyond, like you say, you have to get beyond that internal resistance and and cold and 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 uh, and feeling that somehow they can't do that because then they're on the wrong side of the political mm-hmm. divide or whatever. To be able to unleash some of that that ingenuity would be a really good thing. Yeah, my my guess because look how many engine. I mean, you got you you say millions of employees. You probably have a you probably have you know several hundred thousand engineers. My guess is, and and I should do this work sometime to figure out. But my guess is there's more investment in R and D for clean energy happening in oil and gas companies than all other resources combined. That would be my guess because if you think about the international oil and gas majors. 
um, you know, Total, Shell, ExxonMobil. Like if you just think about these massive companies with annual revenues, the sizes of, you know, of, of large countries, these companies are now starting to commit 20, 30 percent of their um, business to developing clean technologies. So it's actually pretty extraordinary. I think we're going to start seeing this transformation where these are really meaningful uh, bodies that are, are going to transform the energy system. So what about non-oil and gas energy? So what about battery technology? What about what about nuclear? I mean, I constantly am telling people, stop closing nuclear plants. I mean, my newsletter, I'm constantly saying, stop closing nuclear plants. I get it. I get it. I grew up not liking nuclear too. My family, I think, was part of the the you know the protest of, of the last uh, the last existing nuclear plant that was planned in Tulsa in 1979 or whatever, <laughs> BlackRock, I think, or whatever. But I get it. That was a different era. We knew, le- we knew, and it was a different time. We know a lot more now. It's, you know, uh, nuclear power is carbon free. It's a different thing. It has its own challenges, but they are workable in, in a world in which we want to move forward on climate. What about nuclear? What's your, what's your sense of it? Yeah, nuclear is a, is a victim of this oversimplification, um, this idea that we don't need it, and and these oversimplified comparisons of cost of say wind or solar compared to what you could generate. So, absolutely, we 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 should all be wildly enthusiastic about a zero carbon power source that has a tiny footprint, because right. the, the footprint that we're talking about requiring globally for wind and solar is just untenable. Like there's no scenario it's it's going to happen without massive innovations to shrink their footprint. Right. Um, but nuclear has a tiny footprint yeah. and we could bring it into developing economies. And it really supports the idea of electrify everything in a way that wind and solar don't, because there's a real trade-off cost. If you yeah. uh, if you triple, just take my state of Colorado or our yeah. state of Colorado, if you triple um, electricity through only wind and solar, I, I haven't done the math, but I imagine we don't have those acres. So yeah, let's yeah. invite in a nuclear plant. That starts making a lot more sense. Tell me about energy density, because the, it seems like the, the great advantage of nuclear is you get so much energy out of so little. It, it, it exists on relatively little land. And yeah, it takes a lot of degree of of maintenance and safety. We know that. And and maybe maybe we needed to go through a few decades of, of nuclear disasters, you know, cut one here, one there, one the other place to make sure that we take it that much more seriously. But still on a relative scale to almost any other energy, right? It's 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 uh it, it exists on a much smaller footprint and it causes a lot less uh unintended consequences. Absolutely. And the the piece that you're hinting at and energy density is one of several pieces is the trade-offs. Every energy source has trade-offs. Right. Um, and, and whether it's the water use, the, the land space, the disposal of the spent fuel, the need for transmission lines because you can't locate it close to your urban centers where you need the energy, the trade-offs matter. And when we oversimplify, we yeah. actually create an impossible narrative for how we're going to solve climate change. But when you look at the trade-offs, nuclear makes so much sense in so many different scenarios because there's actually lots of different options now at different scales. So little, you know, little tiny plants for small communities, you know, big um, uh, hundreds of megawatts for urban areas. There's, there's really quite a nice array of options 
that we can look at if we, if we could all get behind it. And there's innovation, right? There's uh, there's there's innovation so, yeah. in the field potentially. I mean, it may be a decade out, but there's some there's some good potential. Mm-hmm, absolutely, and and that, that you bring up an interesting point because nuclear gets that like like a, a fuel source is evil kind of, you know, it has horns on it. And it, it's not that different than oil and gas in the sense that we just have to let go of these ideas that there's good and bad energy yeah. sources. And yeah. in fact, there's energy sources with trade-offs and we need to pick the right solutions. And sometimes that's going to be emit fossils and capture them and store them. And sometimes that's yeah. going to emit fossils, but offset them somewhere else. And sometimes yeah. it's going to be nuclear. Yeah. I, that's a great point. And I feel in this, in, in many dialogues, but that I have, you know, with, with around the issue, complex issues and difficult issues, I just feel when we get, there's a danger in a certain type of, uh, of sort of magical thinking sometimes, but also a certain type of idealism that we want, we really want something to be true. And I'm, I might want it to be true as well. Mm-hmm. But, but sometimes if we don't acknowledge, you know, I, I sometimes say the refusal to acknowledge legitimate trade-offs and authentic trade-offs you know it, it the refusal to acknowledge them is a source of a lot of suffering in the world you know mm-hmm. it's like if we can't acknowledge that there's downs and then, and then we can have real conversations about how we do it but as long as we're just nope we're going to do it this way this way we're not having that deeper conversation about what are the actual trade-offs here then we then we're just going to we're just going to outsource all those unintended consequences and turn our eye to them instead of instead of putting them in the room and saying, okay, what's the best decision here? Mm, I love that because that that's applicable. This idea of the 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 angels in the details, the opportunities in the details mm. um, that we can have when we stop having these absolutes. And so, like a theme I'm taking away from this conversation, Carter, is is how we, we sort of polarize everything like good fuel, bad fuel, you know, left, right, climate, not, you know, fossils. And really I think we're, I I love your quote because the trade-offs are applicable to all of these things. Like there's humans and there's opportunity to move forward and there's looking for shared ground and there's finding the conflict, but, but working through it. Um, And so I love that quote. I think it's really applicable to a lot of the things we're, we're addressing. I well, Texas and California, I think, are very interesting examples in the energy industry right now because you have two different, very different situations and very different problems, and maybe both show examples of how we don't want to go forward, and both show examples mm-hmm. of how we how we should go forward. You have in Texas these kind of like unprepared for for cold weather unprepared uh, the infrastructure was was inadequate you know somehow radically inadequate and and uh, and you know almost was even more of a disaster and then and in California you have rolling blackouts they're they're closing down nuclear there there you have uh, they're not prepared the costs are rising in various ways the energy infrastructure is also not really it doesn't provide a kind of a direction that we want to go quite either even though maybe there's some good things in both states I'm not saying both states might have some good things. Tell, tell, talk to we've, but we've had these dramatic examples of blackouts in California and and disasters in Texas. Tell me about what we can learn from both those states. Yeah, the the funny thing I work with a professor at Stanford on these energy issues, and he says, "Well, I do. I have come to the conclusion that it's the rich liberal parts of the world that are going to have to break the energy system, but at least they can afford to." And so he's he's really thinking 
about this idealism that we've been talking about and how that's embodied in California. And his his opinion is that California is going to break their grid, make energy prices so high that people start fleeing the state. And um, and while I guess, you know, that's just part of the way we're setting out to do things. And so that's been a really interesting one for me to watch because uh, California also does have have some really good uh, elements that are working well, like their low carbon fuel standard, which is driving all kinds of innovation and carbon sequestration. But overall, the politics are driving the policy. And and right now you need natural gas on an electric grid to keep it stable. And so the more you try to squeeze out natural gas, you're just going to break things. It, you're closing um, down if you close down nuclear, right? You you need natural yeah. gas because yeah. wind and solar can't do it on their own and yeah. and other sources can't fill that gap. So you need something to provide that baseload power, right? That power when the you know, when the sun's not yep. shining, when the wind's not blowing, something's got to do it. Right now, it, it, if it's not oil, we don't do oil, then it's got to be natural gas. If it's not natural gas, it's got to be nuclear. Mm-hmm. There's not much else, right, that yep. can do that job, yes, right? So in, in some ways, closing down nuclear plants is like saying, yes, is it saying more natural gas? It's almost a zero sum, right? right? Yeah, exactly. And, and so sitting as I do in Colorado, I kind of go, okay, I hope the rest of us get to learn from California. So that's right. how I they're, they're experimenting. California is always experimenting. We're always yes. learning. <laughs> exactly. and, even, and, and this is a, tish, a Tisha perspective that won't be very popular, but even the way the conflicts have engaged with PG&E over the starting of fires and then the rolling oh, blackouts to prevent fires, even that just falls into this predictable, unproductive blaming of the utility. And I, I just would like to see a new paradigm of engagement, like put this utility on the defensive in an impossible situation. Whereas really we have structural problems with our energy system, with our forestry system that we all need to roll up our sleeves and get to work on. And so that also is an example of this oversimplification that's not moving. Oh, I saw that with pg and I mean, I kind of felt, I mean, look, pg and may be, they may have all kinds of internal problems. I, I'm not going to say they don't, they may. And mm-hmm. But I mean, the way in which they're regulated, the way in which they're, you know, they can't make a move left or right without mm-hmm. 20 critics or 20, you know, and then they get blamed. On one hand, they get, everyone blames them, maybe justifiably for, putting these lines through these, the trees and for, you know, starting fires, but then they get blamed for the black, you know, then they go, okay, yeah. that's good. We go, we're going to do blackouts to make sure that doesn't cause fires. And then they get so blamed for the black. Exactly. It's, just, it's just like, you kind of feel like, you know, I, I don't know if I should feel sorry for them. Maybe I shouldn't. Maybe there's a whole background there. I don't know, but you can't help but feel this isn't helping anyone. Somehow. Exactly. <laughs> we're not working towards solution. Yeah. And then, and then Texas, there's so many interesting things in Texas is grid, but one we did see was the limits of free market solutions, because um, among many other disasters, uh, one of the interesting fallouts of Texas is that gas prices were trading at like 5,000% above normal. Um, and that's just not, that just shouldn't be able to happen in a crisis yeah. um, of that, of this magnitude. So that there's a lot, going to be a lot of interesting takeaways um, coming out of Texas, including like, well, what is the appropriate role for government? and the regulator. And I think even, you know, in, in places where there's a overwhelmingly libertarian mindset, mm-hmm. we're going to see um, an expectation that there is a, that there's a better backstop. Right. Um, and so I think that's important. Now, I of course wish that that the Texas um, meltdown hadn't turned into this, it's gas's fault. It's 
Wynn's fault. Like that was an again just an unproductive, goofy blame game that went on. Yeah, he's like, if you're on the left, you blame it on gas. If you're on the left, you blame yeah. it on gas. If you're on the right, you blame it on wind. I mean, it just. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was just silly. It's uh, it's kind of like what we were talking about with PG&E. There's a little bit of it, like it seemed more about overall this, infrastructure somehow. Yeah, we could use this energy better. We could use our energy in 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 forming solutions. Tell me about the Biden administration. What's happened? What do you see? What's coming down the line? What do you see in the infrastructure bill? What do you see in the, in the, um, what do you see as positive? Uh, what do you see? What are you concerned about? What, what's happening? Uh, I'm really excited that there are very sophisticated and experienced players in the Biden administration working on energy. One of the undervalued parts of U.S. energy um, policy is how important it is to global politics, to to energy security, to global security, to stability. And I think President Biden understands that. And that that's a whole nother conversation, but that's actually really important. Um, and when, in these anti-fossil conversations, if we go too far, we're going to undermine not just our own place in the world, but a lot of potential for informing stability. Um, I'm a little worried that we see some of these oversimplification trends around climate. So there were some early moves that were, I think, can only be seen as pandering um, to to this anti-fossil sentiment, the freezing of leasing, the cancellation of um, the Dakota Access Permit. These are things that are complex and, and really should be taken slowly and in an informed way. They have real effects on thousands and thousands of workers. Um, that said, my, I am extraordinarily optimistic that we have smart people in places who, who will ultimately understand the complexity of the energy system and are truly dedicated to change. And that's what's important, because if you actually care about addressing climate, then you have to get into the complexity and then you have to value the role that oil and gas plays today and will play in the transition. So I, 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 I tend toward optimism anyway, but I like what I see so far. Mm-hmm. Let's move internationally for a moment. I mean, one of the things I've often said is like, if we could, if we could start with, try, rather than trying to make everything renewable right away, if we could start with ending coal, wouldn't that be great? But I'm also aware that, you know, the re, there's a reason why we're, we're not building coal plants. We're shutting them down. But there's a reason why Africa's still building coal plants. There's a reason why other why China's still building coal, ta- coal plants is they're cheap. They're easier. They're, uh, people know how to do them. It, 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 you can put them up fast. Uh, for a hungry energy world, I get why for people who are just desperate for better access to energy, they're, they're doing them. So it, it, is that are we are we stuck with coal for a while? Can we move to something else? I have a of a, a good friend who who owns a or a friend who owns a battery company in Michigan, and he was he was saying we're getting the battery technology is actually getting close on some of this stuff uh, to being able to replace it. But where do we stand? Because obviously, you know you you can't we can't put developing countries in a position where they have to sort of choose between our climate ideals and their and their sort of just kind of human development opportunities. Uh, that's a really tricky situation to be in. So where are we with international, with, with the hunger for energy around the world? Yeah. So it's, it's such an important question because it, it begs the conversation for trade-offs about, are we better off getting people 
energy industrialized um, so that they can adapt to climate? Or is it more important that we prevent emissions? And that actually is a conversation that should be happening on a country by country basis, rather than this idea of we're not going to finance fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. Um, that That is a such an oversimplification that it actually drives uh, countries to develop coal because they can afford to develop coal. So if you're not going to help right. them develop natural gas, right. it almost has the opposite effect, I guess, because now they can't really, that's the only thing they can afford. A hundred percent. And I wrote uh, an article. If, if, I mean, if you're not, just so listeners understand, if you're not, if you say we're not going to help you finance any, so then they don't have, they have less money. Now the only thing they can do is, is do what's cheapest and coal is cheapest. Exactly. Right? And what, or what they might do is take international funds to build solar and then use their own funds to develop coal. But the reality is coal is what is affordable. And coal is beautiful and low emission if you're burning dung. Um, so so yeah. we really do have to put this in perspective. Um, a, a, a re, a re, these are really relevant needs. And so um, I wrote an article that I'll just tell a quick story um, about, which is I was in Ghana and I was taken to task because the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, was denying Ghana uh, funding uh, for all their funding if they built a coal plant. Now, they weren't asking for funding for the coal plant. They were going to build the coal plant with their own money because they had a steel uh, plant they couldn't keep powered, um, and it employed 3,000 people. And so they couldn't build this coal plant, so 3,000 people were sitting out of work. And meanwhile, an international oil and gas company um, was allowed within, you know, to, to export their natural gas, um, which they, they couldn't use domestically because they don't have the, the resources, the, you know, the financing to build natural gas infrastructure. So this is just a classic, um, challenge. But it's their natural gas, It's their natural gas. (laughs) And not only can't, they can't build, they can't build natural gas. Yeah. And so it was such a great, um, example of how we are of oversimplification because we actually want we actually want let's help them build coal transition to natural gas and then we can transition to carbon capture later but what we really want is to keep um youth employed (laughs) and productive and countries moving towards prosperity so i think the the it's interesting. It would be easy to say, oh yeah, I'm anti-coal, but actually my, you can't travel very far around the world and not see the importance of coal, particularly in the absence of financing for natural gas projects, which are more complicated and and are harder to create. Um, But ultimately my, my work in that space is around uh, securing funding for natural gas projects so that we can move off coal, because I think that's, that's the smart path. Um, yeah. But in the absence of that, we're going we're gonna to get a lot more coal. Right. Yeah. It seems inevitable. It's one of those, that's one of the unintended consequences mm-hmm. of trying to, and, and, you know, it, it seems like one of the things I, I'm appreciating these days is like all the edge cases, like, like, you know, Robert Bryson, you know, I just interviewed him recently had, you know, he's talking about a place in Lebanon where they moved from diesel generators backups to, to salt, to, to batteries and salt generated backups. And, and it worked, it was working great. And, you know, I go out and I run my lawnmower to, you know, 20 years ago, that was, you put oil in that thing and now it's all electric. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, you start to see all this transformation of the energy structure is changing little by little. It's going through this, this change and it's going to continue to do that. Um, I, I, you know, it's, and, and a lot of those things start with edge cases, you know, that's how, that's sort of how evolution happens. Mm-hmm. Obviously evolution happens on the edges, but, and then it, it moves, it moves inward to the, to the big, to the bigger things. 
what's your what's your most optimistic what's your optimistic vision because I, I like sometimes i feel people are almost too pet i mean maybe this is me but i often feel people are almost too pet either they're too idealistic mm-hmm. or too pessimistic right well, and, yeah, <laughs> that so, makes sense because sometimes i think god we can do this we can yeah we there's a lot of climate change baked into the cake we can acknowledge that yeah so and and there's nothing we can do about that in the the near term but there is it just feels like we can do this there's so much we can do things are moving forward we can transform this energy structure we can't do it we can't snap our fingers and do it but it feels like there's so much we can do yeah so my my vision is idealistic um but informed by pragmatism so uh, i do i do think globally that we need to prioritize uh, countries moving out of poverty, moving into the middle class, industrializing uh, as quickly as possible. And that, and and they're just not going to take that much of our carbon budget because we've taken, we've taken it all. And, and in a changing climate, there is no more important priority than creating uh, human prosperity and thriving because the, as, you can deal with it. Yeah, as economies thrive, they become more environmentally conscious and they drop their emissions. But but while people are living subsistence lives, uh, climate change is just going to be devastating. And we know how to do all that. That's like actually like we're on track. We're making you know the world is getting better. People are rising out of poverty, and as long as we don't uh, constrain their options, uh, that that can happen. So um, I do actually think that people who work in international financing are are ultimately thoughtful, pragmatic people, and that we will we will solve for that. And then in, in industrialized, uh, rich countries like the U.S., I imagine that we are about to embark on the hard work of decarbonizing the hard stuff. And the way that's yeah. going to work is that we we just break get that out of our politics. And it becomes um, a, a societal mobilization against, you know, if we have to have a, a shared enemy, the shared em- enemy can be carbon molecules and, you know, carbon, <laughs> carbon atoms in the atmosphere. Um, right. And but to do that well, I think we end up transforming a lot of existing infrastructure, existing yeah. companies. We can't build it all from whole cloth. Just imagine the mining required to do that. You know, that, that mm-hmm. we, we can't do that. So let's really be thinking about transformation of existing companies, existing uh, people's careers, uh, existing infrastructure. And then I think we're, you know, we're on a 20, 30 year uh, track to meaningful change. And then, of course, we're going to have to have some adaption. And, but if we're, yeah. if we're rich, if we're raising right. people out of poverty, then this is like the ultimate jobs program because uh, adapting is all about infrastructure and mm-hmm. we know how to do this. We know how to transform uh, our economy when we need to through investment. And so uh, that's how I imagine this playing out. And it, o- it only works if we break down this idea of us versus them, of course. And I think we will because we kind of have to. Like, what's the option? What's the other option? Yeah. We're just going to keep fiddling around <laughs> on that's, this topic. That seems silly. That's, no, that's fantastic. That's great. Um, I, I, I have one last question. I probably should have asked you this earlier, partially because I know some people who are listening to this podcast will ask this question. 
you know, because there is a lot of optimism about, about renewables and about the solar in particular, and especially in like the Silicon Valley worlds and the technology worlds, there's all this optimism about the the informational exponential development of solar technology, and that is it's getting the price per you know the price per whatever the solar the voltaics are getting better and better, and the price is getting better, and it's just it's just gonna like you know it's gonna be transformative in a way that no one can predict because they don't understand exponential change, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. So I feel like I should, what's your, what's your, what's your sense of how solar plays out in the future, what's your hope for it, but also uh, what's your response to that? Yeah. So both solar and, and batteries have perhaps unlimited potential and, And we have to work with what we know today and also understand what those things solve for. So we can't keep saying, oh, solar is going to solve all these things, but we can't prove it. Or batteries are going to solve all these things, but we can't prove it. We can aspire and invest in R&D. That goes back to the complexity. And in the meantime, we need to be working on these other pieces. Right, right. The, the perhaps more important response to that is that solar still only solves for power. So th- that's still only solving for a yeah. quarter, you know, and maybe ultimately a third of our carbon emissions. Yeah. So it's important, but we, we don't get to run oil and gas out of business because sol- you know, solar has a miracle. Yeah. Um, similarly, batteries, uh, while we can at some point solve for a day, maybe two days, maybe three days, if we're lucky, we're not going to solve for seasons and seasons yeah. ultimately what we have to solve for with baseload power. Right. So you're going to have to have a nuclear or a natural gas with carbon capture sequestration um, for baseload power uh, at some point in a, in a lot of places to get through seasonal variation. Yeah. yeah. As we've right. Right. Good. Good. Well, anything else that, that, what, what, okay. So beyond all that, beyond the, the, the whole picture of the energy industry, what's the technology you're most personally excited about? I'm, I'm having a moment about hydrogen right now. Oh, and that's it's cool. It's mostly because I thought hydrogen was dead. I thought carbon I thought capture. So too. When you brought it up, I thought, wow, that's cool. Okay. Carbon capture and sequestration were dead. But one of the joys I get to do is work with companies on their, de- you know, oil and gas companies uh, on their decarbonization toolboxes. And so, you know, the, this is where they're investing in R&D. They're imagining their energy future. They're imagining their role changing their infrastructure. And it's hydrogen, hydrogen, hydrogen. And so um, I'm still a baby in, in learning about it because it's extraordinary complex and it has, you know, dozens of options in terms of how uh, hydrogen can help us decarbonize transportation, um, tr- decarbonize industrialization um, and help with power. But that's actually really exciting to have something that you thought was dead all of a sudden seem to be alive and everywhere is um is pretty extraordinary because what, so when you say solar and batteries, I think what's the miracle coming from hydrogen and and what's it going to affect? And hopefully it's going to affect something in addition to power. Well, this is great. I've learned something new because I, I, I also thought, well, maybe that's, I, you know, I've kind of, well, maybe a new nuclear or, you know, this uh, the modular nuclear is, nuclear is going to be the next really breakthrough technology and energy, but maybe not. Maybe it's in hydrogen. So you've, in, you've inspired me to, to dig a little deeper to that world. So that's, well, that's we'll, we'll learn together. But isn't it cool <laughs> that we have things to learn about that? That's why we should all have hope. Because when we talk again in six months, there's going to be something else that we thought didn't exist that now is 
high potential. It's so exciting. That's great. Well, thank you so much. That's fantastic. I appreciate you coming on and I look forward to to having these conversations and watching this, uh, this space evolve. Oh, thanks for what you do, Carter. I love your show and I'm just so honored to be a guest. Thanks, Tisha. Take care. I want to thank Tisha Schuler for joining me today in the podcast. And once again, if you're interested in following up on her work, uh, the book I mentioned in the intro is called Accidentally Adamant. And her most recent book is called The Game Changers Playbook, How Oil and Gas Leaders Thrive in an Era of Continuous Disruption. And you can also find out about her podcast and newsletter. Uh, I think the podcast is called Energy Thinks. The newsletter is called Both of These Things Are True. And you can find out both of those at the website energythinks.com, which is the website of her consulting agency. All right. That's it for today's episode of Thinking Ahead. And just a reminder that if you want to follow this podcast more carefully, you can always sign up for the newsletter. Uh, carterphipscom slash newsletter. It will give you all the latest news and information about the thinking about the, the podcast and new episodes and also some of the things I'm reading about and interested in during any given week. All right, that's it for today, and uh, I'll see you next time. <laughs>